the collected writings from Fantasy Fan Magazine by Clark Ashton Smith. The Kingdom of the Worm Forward. Every fantasy reader knows Clark Ashton Smith, and he needs no introduction. Not only is he the favorite of thousands, but his work has been said to rival and even surpass Poe. Although as a general rule we do not take sides, we admit without the slightest hesitation that we enjoy Clark Ashton Smith's tales a great deal more than we do Poe's. Even those that find Smith's work altogether too fantastic must admit that no other author has nearly as beautiful a vocabulary, and few have as great an ability to produce the utterly weird effect as our present author. He claims that The Kingdom of the Worm is one of his weirdest and most original of his tales, and we are inclined to agree with him. Let the story speak for itself. This tale was suggested by the reading of the Voyages and Travels of Sir John Mondeville, in which the fantastic realm of Abchaz and the darkness-covered province of Hanison are actually described. I recommend this colorful 14th-century book to lovers of fantasy. Sir John even tells in one chapter how diamonds propagate themselves. Truly, the world was a wonderful place in those times, when almost everyone believed in the verity of such marvels. Now in his journeying, Sir John Mondeville had passed well to one side of that remarkable province in the kingdom of Abchaz, which was called Hanison. And unless he was greatly deceived by those of whom he had inquired the way, could deem himself within two days' travel of the neighboring realm of Georgia. He had seen the river that flowed out from Hanison, a land of hostile idolaters on which there lay the curse of perpetual darkness, and wherein it was told the voices of people the crowing of cocks, and the neighing of horses, had sometimes been heard by those who approached its confines. But he had not paused to investigate the verity of these marvels, since the direct route of his journey was through another region, and also Hanison was a place into which no man, not even the most hardy, would care to enter without need. However, as he pursued his wayfaring with the two Armenian Christians who formed his retinue, he began to hear from the inhabitants of that portion of Abchaz the rumor of an equally dread Demesne, named Antichar, lying before him on the road to Georgia. The tales they told were both vague and frightful, and were of varying import. Some said this country was a desolation peopled only by the liches of the dead, and by loathly phantoms, others that it was subject to the ghouls and afrits who devoured the dead and would suffer no living mortal to trespass upon their dominions. And still others spoke of things all too hideous to be described, and of dire necromancies that prevailed in Antichar, even as the might of emperors doth prevail in more usually ordered lands. And the tales agreed only in this, that Antichar had been within mortal memory, one of the fairest domains of Abchaz, but had been utterly laid waste by an unknown pestilence, so that its High cities and broad fields were long since abandoned to the desert, and to such devils and other creatures as inhabit waste places. And the tellers of the tales agreed in warning Sir John to avoid this region, and to take the road which ran deviously to the north of Antichar, for Antichar was a place into which no man had gone in latter times. The good knight listened gravely to all these, as was his wont, but being a stout Christian, and valorous withal, 
he would not suffer them to deter him from his purpose. Even when the last inhabited village had been left behind, and he came to the division of ways, and saw verily that the highway into Anshar had not been trodden by man or beast for generations, he refused to change his intention, but rode forward stoutly while the Armenians followed with much protest and some trepidation. Howbeit he was not blind to the sundry disagreeable tokens that began to declare themselves along the way. There were neither trees, herbs, nor lichens anywhere, such as would grow in any wholesome land, but low hills mottled with a leprosy of salt, and ridges bare as the bones of the dead. Anon he came to a pass where the hills were straight and steep on each hand, with pinnacled cliffs of a dark stone crumbling slowly into dust, and taking shapes of wild horror and strangeness, of demonry and satanry as they crumbled. There were faces in the stone, having the semblance of ghouls or goblins that appeared to move and twist as the travellers went by. And Sir John and his companions were troubled by the aspect of these faces, and by the similitudes which they bore to one another. So much alike, indeed, were many of them that it seemed as if their first exemplars were preceding the wayfarers to mock them anew at each turn. And aside from those which were like ghouls or goblins, there were others having the features of heathen idols, uncouth and hideous to behold, and others still that were like the worm-gnawed visages of the dead. And these also appeared to repeat themselves on every hand in a doubtful and wildering fashion. The Armenians would have turned back, for they swore that the rocks were alive and endowed with motion, in a land where naught else was living, and they sought to dissuade Sir John from his project. But he said merely, Follow me, and ye will, and rode onward among the rocks and pinnacles. Now in the ancient dust of the unused road they saw the tracks of a creature that was neither man nor any terrestrial beast, and the tracks were of such unwanted shape and number, and were so monstrous withal, that even Sir John was disquieted thereby and perceiving them, the Armenians murmured more openly than before. And now, as they pursued their way, the pinnacles of the pass grew tall as giants, and were riven into the likeness of mighty limbs and bodies, some of which were headless, and others with heads of typhoian enormity. And their shadows deepened between the travelers and the sun, to more than the umbrage of shadows cast by rocks. And in the darkest depth of the ravine, Sir John and his followers met a solitary jackal, which fled them not in the manner of its kind, but passed them with leisurely pace, and bespoke them with articulate words, in a voice hollow and sepulchral, as that of a demon, bidding them to turn back since the land before them was an interdicted realm. All were much startled thereat, considering that this was indeed a thing of enchantment, for a jackal to speak thus, and being against nature, was fore ominous of ill and peril. And the Armenians cried out, saying they would go no further. And when the jackal had passed from sight, they fled after it, spurring their horses like men who were themselves ridden by devils. Seeing them thus abandon him, Sir John was somewhat wroth, and also he was perturbed by the warning of the jackal, and he liked not the thought of faring alone into Antichar. But, Trusting in our Saviour to forfend him against all harmful enchantments and the necromancies of Satan, he rode on among the rocks till he came forth at length from their misshapen shadows, and emerging thus he saw before him a grey plain 
that was like the ashes of some dead land under extinguished heavens. At sight of this region his heart misgave him sorely, and he misliked it even more than the twisted faces of the rocks and the riven forms of the pinnacles. For here the bones of men, of horses and camels, had marked the way with their pitiable whiteness, and the topmost branches of long dead trees arose like supplicative arms from the sand that had sifted upon the older gardens. And here there were ruinous houses, with the doors open to the high-drifting desert, and mausoleums sinking slowly in the dunes. And here, as Sir John rode forward, the sky darkened above him, though not with the passage of clouds or the coming of Simoon, but rather with the strange dusk of midmost eclipse, wherein the shadows of himself and his horse were blotted out, and the tombs and houses were wan as phantoms. Sir John had not ridden much further when he met a horned viper, or Sarastus, crawling toilsomely away from Aunt Char in the deep dust of the road, and the viper spoke at it past him, saying with a human voice, Be warned, and go not onward into Aunt Char, for this is a realm forbidden to all mortal beings except the dead. Now did Sir John address himself in prayer to God the Highest, and to Jesus Christ our Savior, and all the blessed saints, knowing surely that he had arrived in a place that was subject to satanical dominion. And while he prayed, the gloom continued to thicken, till the road before him was half-nighted, and was no longer easy to discern. And though he would have still ridden on, his charger halted in the gloom, and would not respond to the spur, but stood and trembled like one who was smitten with palsy. Then from the twilight that was nigh to darkness, there came gigantic figures, muffled and silent, and having, as he thought, neither mouths nor eyes beneath the brow-folds of their sable cerements. They uttered no word, nor could Sir John bespeak them in the fear that came upon him, and likewise he was powerless to draw his sword, and they plucked him from his saddle with fleshless hands, and led him away, half-swooning at the horror of their touch, on paths that he perceived only with the dim senses of one who goes down into the shadow of death. And he knew not how far they led him, nor in what direction, and he heard no sound as he went other than the screaming of his horse far off, like a soul in mortal dread and agony. For the footfalls of those who had taken him were soundless, and he could not tell if they were phantoms or, haply, were veritable demons, a coldness blew upon him, but without the whisper or soughing of wind, and the air he breathed was dense with corruption and such odors as may emanate from a broken charnel. For a time in the faintness that had come upon him, he saw not the things that were standing beside the way, nor the shrouded shapes that went by in funereal secrecy. Then recovering his senses a little, he perceived that there were houses about him and the streets of a town though these were but scantily to be discerned in the night that had fallen without bringing the stars. Howbeit he saw, or deemed, that there were high mansions and broad thoroughfares and markets, and among them, as he went on, a building that bore the appearance of a great palace, with a façade that glimmered vaguely, and domes and turrets half swallowed up by the lowering darkness. As he neared the façade, Sir John saw that the glimmering came from within, and was cast obscurely through open doors and between broad-spaced pillars. 
Too feeble was the light for torch or cresset, too dim for any lamp, and Sir John marveled amid his faintness and terror. But when he had drawn closer still, he saw that the strange gleaming was like the phosphor bred by the putrefaction of a charnel. Beneath the guidance of those who held him helpless, he entered the building. They led him through a stately hall, in whose carven columns and ornate furniture the opulence of kings was manifest, and thence he came into a great audience room, with a throne of gold and ebony set on a high dais, all of which was illumined by no other light than the glimmering of decay. And the throne was tenanted not by any human lord or sultan, but a grey, prodigious creature, of height and bulk exceeding those of man, and having in all its over-swollen form the exact similitude of a charnel worm. And the worm was alone, and except for the worm and Sir John and all those beings who had brought him thither, the great chamber was empty as a mausoleum of old days, whose occupants were long since consumed by corruption. Then standing there with a horror upon him such as no man had ever envisaged, Sir John became aware that the worm was scrutinizing him severely, with little eyes deep-folded in the obscene bloating of its face. And then with a dreadful and solemn voice it addressed him, saying, I am king of Antchar, by virtue of having conquered and devoured the mortal ruler thereof, as well as all those who were his subjects. Know then that this land is mine, and that the intrusion of the living is unlawful and not readily to be condoned. The rashness and folly thou hast shown in thus coming here is verily most egregious. Since thou wert warned by the peoples of Abchaz, and warned anew by the jackal and the viper which thou didst meet on the road into Antchar, thy temerity hath earned a condign punishment, and before I suffer thee to go hence, I decree that thou shalt lie for a term among the dead, and dwell as they dwell in a dark sepulchre, and learn the manner of their abiding and the things which none should behold with living eyes. Yea, still alive, it shall be thine to descend and remain in the very midst of death and putrefaction for such length of time as seemeth meet to correct thy folly and punish thy presumption. Sir John was one of the worthiest knights in Christendom, and his valor was beyond controversy. But when he heard the speech of the throned worm and the judgment that it passed upon him, his fear became so excessive that once again he was nigh to swooning. And still in this state he was taken hence by those who had brought him to the audience room, and somewhere in the outer darkness in a place of tombs and graves and cenotaphs beyond the dim town, he was flung into a deep sepulchre of stone, and the brazen door of the sepulchre was closed upon him. Lying there through the seasonless midnight, Sir John was companioned only by an unseen cadaver and by those ministrants of decay who were not yet wholly done with their appointed task. Himself as one half dead, in the sore extremity of his horror and loathing, he could not tell it were day or night in Antchar, and in all the terms of endless hours that he lay there, he heard no sound other than the beating of his own heart. 
which soon became insufferably loud, and oppressed him like the noise and tumult of a great throng. Appalled by the clamor of his heart and affrighted by the thing which lay in perpetual silence beside him, and whelmed by the awesomeness and dire necromancy of all that had befallen him, Sir John was prone to despair, and scant was his hope of returning from that imprisonment amid the dead, or of standing once more under the sun as a living man. It was his to learn the voidness of death, to share the abomination of desolation, and to comprehend the unutterable mysteries of corruption. And to do all this not as one who is a mere insensible cadaver, but with soul and body still inseparate, his flesh crept, and his spirit cringed within him, as he felt the crawling of worms that went avidly to the dwindling corpse or came away in glutted slowness. And it seemed to Sir John at the time, and at all times thereafter, that the condition of his sojourn in the tomb was verily to be accounted a worse thing than death. At last, when many hours or days had gone over him, leaving the tomb's darkness unchanged by the entrance of any beam or the departure of any shadow, Sir John was aware of a sullen clangor, and knew that the brazen door had been opened. And now for the first time, by the dimness of twilight that had entered the tomb, he saw in all its piteousness and repulsion the thing which he had abode so long. In the sickness that fell upon him at this sight, he was haled forth from the sepulchre by those who had thrust him therein. And fainting once more with the terror of their touch, and shrinking from their gigantic shadowy stature and cerements whose black folds revealed no human visage or form, he was led through Aunt Char along the road, whereby he had to come into that dolorous realm. His guides were silent as before, and the gloom which lay upon the land was even as when he had entered it, and was like the umbrage of some eternal occultation. But at length, in the very place where he had been taken captive, he was left to retrace his own way, and to fare alone through the land of ruinous gardens toward the defile of the crumbling rocks. Weak though he was from his confinement, and all bemazed with the things which had befallen him, he followed the road till the darkness lightened once more, and he came forth from its penumbral shadow beneath a pale sun. And somewhere in the waste he met his charger, wandering through the sunken fields that were covered up by the sand, and he mounted the charger and rode hastily away from Aunt Char through the pass of the strange boulders, with mocking forms and faces, and after a time he came once more to the northern road by which travellers commonly went to Georgia, and here he was rejoined by the two Armenians who had waited on the confines of Aunt Char, praying for his secure deliverance. Long afterwards, when he had returned from his wayfaring in the east and among the peoples of remote isles, he told of the kingdom of Abchaz in the book that related his travels, and also he wrote therein concerning the province of Hanison. But he made no mention of Antchar, that kingdom of darkness and decay, ruled by the throned worm. End of section one, the kingdom of the worm. A dream of the abyss. I seemed at the sheer end, albeit mine eyes in mystery and night, 
shrouded as with the thick profundity of death, or as if underneath leathern lintors drowned. Saw never lamp nor star nor dead star's wraith of light, yet seemed I at the world's sheer end, and fearfully and slowly I drew breath from silent gulfs of all uncertainty and dread. Precipitate to Nadir from around, nor trusted I on any side to tread. One pace, lest I should overstep the brink, and infinitely and forever sink. Past I shot of the Cyclopean sun, when from the bulwark of the world adown oblivion, he on the morrow should stare after me. Swift from infinity, the black, unformed, enormous fear that lives between the stars, clutched with the cold, great darkness at my heart. Then from the gulf arose a whispering, and rustle as of silence on the wing, to stay and stand, anear at my right hand. What powers abysmal, born o'er the blind black air, what nameless demons of the nether deep, that scape the sun and from the moonlight live apart, came and conspired against me there. I heard not ere the whispering ceased, and a heavier darkness seemed to spring upon me, and I felt the silence leap and clasp me closer, and the sweep of all the abyss reach up and drag body and feet from the crumbling uttermost crag to the plumb and infinite emptiness unknown, nor knew I, in tumult of the rapid air, if me did Azrael or Abaddon bear, or if I fell alone. End of section two, A Dream of the Abyss. During the reign of the Caliph Vathek, a young man of good repute and family named Nuruddin Hassan was hailed before the Qadi Ahmed bin Bakar at Busora. Now Nuruddin was a comely youth, of open and gentle mien, and great was the astonishment of the Qadi and of all others present when they heard the charges that were preferred against him. He was accused of having slain seven people, one by one, on seven successive nights, and of having left the corpses in a cemetery near Busora, where they were found lying with their bodies and members devoured in a fearsome manner as if by jackals. Of the people he was said to have slain, three were women, two were traveling merchants, one was a mendicant, and one was a grave-digger. Ahmed bin Bakar was filled with the learning and wisdom of honorable years, and withal was possessed of much perspicacity. But he was deeply perplexed by the strangeness and atrocity of these crimes, and by the mild demeanor and well-bred aspect of Nuruddin Hassan, which he could in no wise reconcile with them. He heard in silence the testimony of witnesses who had seen Nuruddin bearing on his shoulders the body of a woman at yester eve in the cemetery, and others who on several occasions had observed him coming from the neighborhood at unseemly hours when only thieves and murderers would be abroad. Then, having considered all these, he questioned the youth closely. Nuruddin Hassan, he said, thou hast been charged with crimes of exceeding foulness which thy bearing and thy lineaments belie. Is there haply an explanation of these things, by which thou canst wholly clear thyself, 
or in some measure mitigate the heinousness of thy deeds, if so it be that thou art guilty. I adjure thee to tell me the truth in this matter. Now Nur ad-Din Hassan arose before the Qadi, and the heaviness of extreme shame and sorrow was visible on his countenance. Alas, O Qadi, he replied, for the charges that have been brought against me are indeed true. It was I and none other who slew these people, nor can I offer any extenuation of my act. The Qadi was sorely grieved and astonished when he heard this answer. I must perforce believe thee, he said sternly, but thou hast confessed a thing which will make thy name henceforward an abomination in the ears and mouths of men. I commend thee to tell me why these crimes were committed, and what offence these persons had given thee, or what injury they had done to thee, or if perchance thou slewest them for gain like a common robber. There was neither offence given nor injury wrought by any of them against me, replied Nur ad and I did not kill them for their money or belongings or apparel, since I had no need of such things, and, aside from that, have always been an honest man. Then, cried Ahmed bin Bakar, greatly puzzled, what was thy reason if it was none of these? Now the face of Nur ad-Din Hassan grew heavier still with sorrow, and he bowed his head in a shamefaced manner that bespoke the utterness of profound remorse. And standing thus before the Qadi, he told this story. The reversals of fortune, O Qadi, are swift and grievous, and beyond the foreknowing of advertence of men. Alas, for less than a fortnight agone, I was the happiest and most guiltless of mortals, with no thought of wrongdoing toward anyone. I was wedded to Amina, the daughter of the jewel merchant Abul Kojia, and I loved her deeply and was much beloved by her in turn. And moreover, we were at this time anticipating the birth of our first child. I had inherited from my father a rich estate and many slaves. The cares of life were light upon my shoulders, and I had, it would seem, every reason to count myself among those whom Allah has blessed with an earthly foretaste of heaven. Judge then the excessive nature of my grief when Amina died in the same hour when she was to have been delivered. From that time, in the dire extremity of my lamentation, I was as one bereft of light and knowledge. I was deaf to all those who sought to condole with me, and blind to their friendly offices. After the burial of Amina, my sorrow became a veritable madness, and I wandered by night to her grave in the cemetery near Bussorah, and flung myself prostrate before the newly lettered tombstone on the earth that had been digged that very day. My senses deserted me and I knew not how long I remained on the damp clay beneath the cypresses, while the horn of a decrescent moon arose in the heavens. Then in my stupor of abandonment I heard a terrible voice that bade me rise from the ground on which I was lying, and lifting my head a little I saw a hideous demon of gigantic frame and stature, with eyes of scarlet fire beneath brows that were coarse as tangled rootlets, and fangs that overhung a cavernous mouth an earth-black, longer and sharper than those of the hyena. And the demon said to me, I am a ghoul, and it is my office to devour the bodies of the dead. I have now come to claim the corpse that was interred today beneath the soil on which thou art lying in a fashion so unmannerly. Begone, for I have fasted since yesternight, and I am much unhungered. 
Now at the sight of this demon, and the sound of his dreadful voice, and the still more dreadful meaning of his words, I was like to have swooned with terror on the cold clay. But I recovered myself in a manner, and besought him, saying, Spare this grave, I implore thee, for she who lies buried therein it, dearer to me than any living mortal, and I would not that her fair body should be the provender of an unclean demon such as thou. At this the ghoul was angered, and I thought that he would have done me some bodily violence, but again I besought him, swearing by Allah and Muhammad with many solemn oaths that I would grant him anything procurable, and would do for him any favor that lay in the power of man if he would leave undespoiled the new-made grave of Amina. And the goal was somewhat mollified, and he said, "'If thou wilt indeed perform for me a certain service, I shall do as thou askest.' And I replied, "'There is no service whatsoever its nature that I will not do for thee in this connection, and I pray thee to name thy desire.' Then the ghoul said, "'It is this, that thou shalt bring to me each night.' For eight successive nights, the body of one whom thou hast slain with thine own hand. Do this, and I shall neither devour nor dig the body that lies interred hereunder. Now was I seized by utter horror and despair, since I had bound myself in all honor to grant the ghoul his hideous requirement. And I begged him to change the terms of the stipulation, saying to him, Is it needful to thee, O eater of corpses, that the bodies should be those of people whom I myself have slain? And the ghoul said, Yea, for all others would be the natural provender of myself or of my kin in any event. I adjure thee by the promise thou hast given to meet me here tomorrow night. When darkness has wholly fallen, or as soon thereafter, as thou art able, bring the first of the eight bodies. So saying, he strode off among the cypresses, and began to dig in another newly made grave at a little distance from that of Amina. I left the graveyard in even direr anguish than when I had come, thinking of that which I must do in fulfillment of my sworn promise, to preserve the body of Amina from the demon. I know not how I survived the ensuing day, torn as I was between sorrow for the dead and my horror of the coming night, with its repugnant duty. When darkness had descended, I went forth by stealth to a lonely road near the cemetery, and waited there amid the low-grown branches of the trees. I slew the first passer with a sword, and carried his body to the spot appointed by the ghoul. And each night thereafter for six more nights I returned to the same vicinity and repeated this deed slaying always the very first who came, whether man or woman, or merchant or beggar or grave-digger. And the ghoul awaited me on each occasion, and would begin to devour his provender in my presence, with small thanks and scant ceremony. Seven persons did I slay in all, till only one was wanting to complete the agreed number, and the person whom I slew yesternight was a woman, even as the witnesses have testified." All this I did with utmost repugnance and regret, and sustained only by the remembrance of my plighted word, and the fate which would befall the corpse of Amina, if I should break the bond. This, O Kadi, is all my story. Alas, for those lamentable crimes have availed me not, and I have failed in wholly keeping my bargain with the demon, who will doubtless this night consume the body of Amina, and lean of the one corpse that is still lacking. I resign myself to thy judgment, O Ahmed bin Bakar, and I beseech thee for no other mercy than that of death, 
wherewith to terminate my double grief and my twofold remorse. When Nur ad-Din Hassan had ended his narrative, the amazement of all who had heard him was verily multiplied, since no man could remember hearing a stranger tale. And the Qadi pondered for a long time and then gave judgment, saying, I must needs marvel at thy story, but the crimes thou hast committed are none the less heinous, and Iblis himself would stand aghast before them. However, some allowance must be made for the fact that thou hadst given thy word to the ghoul, and wast bound, as it were, in honor to fulfill his demand, no matter how horrible its nature. And allowance must likewise be made for thy connubial grief, which caused thee to forfend thy wife's body from the demon." Yet I cannot adjudge thee guiltless, though I know not the punishment which is merited in a case so utterly without parallel. Therefore I set thee free, with this injunction, that thou shalt make atonement for thy crimes in the fashion that seemeth best to thee, and shall render justice to thyself and to others in such degree as thou art able. I thank thee for this mercy, replied Nur ad-Din Hassan, and he then withdrew from the court amid the wonderment of all who were present. There was much debate when he had gone, and many were prone to question the wisdom of the Qadi's decision. Some there were who maintained that Nur ad-Din should have been sentenced to death without delay for his abominable actions, though others argued for the sanctity of his oath to the ghoul, and would have exculpated him altogether or in part. And tales were told, and instances were cited regarding the habits of ghouls, and the strange plight of men who had surprised such demons in their nocturnal delvings. And again the discussion returned to Nuruddin, and the judgment of the Qadi was once more upheld or assailed with divers arguments. But amid all this, Ahmed bin Bakar was silent, saying only, Wait, for this man will render justice to himself, and to all other concerned, as far as the rendering thereof is possible. So indeed it happened, for on the morning of the next day another body was found in the cemetery near Busora lying half-devoured on the grave of Nur ad-Din Hassan's wife, Amina. And the body was that of Nur ad-Din, self-slain, who in this manner had not only fulfilled the injunction of the Qadi, but had also kept his bargain with the ghoul by providing the required number of corpses. End of section 3. The Ghoul The Weird Works of M. R. James the four books of short stories written by Montague Rhodes James, provost of Eton College, have been collected in a single but not overly bulky volume under the imprint of Longman's Green and Company. One can heartily recommend the acquisition of this volume to all lovers of the weird and supernatural who are not already familiar with its contents. James is perhaps unsurpassed in originality by any living writer, and he has made a salient contribution to the technique of his genre as well as to the enriching of its treasury of permanent masterpiece. His work is marked by rare intellectual skill and ingenuity, by power rising at times above the reaches of mere intellection, and by a sheer finesse of writing that will bear almost endless study. It has a peculiar savor, wholly different from the diabolic grimness of Bierce or the accumulative atmospheric terror and rounded classicism of Machen. Here there is nothing of the feverish but logical hallucinations, the macabre and exotic beauty achieved by Poe, nor is there any kinship to the fine poetic weavings and character nuances of Walter de la Mer. 
or the far-searching, penetrative psychism of Blackwood, or the frightful antiquities and ultra-terrene menaces of Lovecraft. The style of these stories is rather casual and succinct. The rhythms of the prose are brisk and pedestrian, and the phrasing is notable for clearness and incisiveness, rather than for those vague reverberative overtones which beguile one's inner ear in the prose of fiction writers who are also poets. Usually there is a more or less homely setting, often with a background of folklore and long-past happenings, whose dim archaism provides a depth of shadow from which, as from a recessed cavern, the central horror emerges into the noontide of the present. Things and occurrences, sometimes without obvious offhand relationship, are grouped cunningly, forcing the reader unaware to some frightful deduction, or there is an artful linkage of events, seemingly harmless in themselves, that leave him confronted at a sudden turn with some ghoulish specter or night demon. The minutiae of modern life, humor, character drawing, scenic, and archaeological description are used as a foil to heighten the abnormal, but are never allowed to usurp a disproportionate interest. Always there is an element of supernatural menace, whose value is never impaired by scientific or spiritualistic explanation. Sometimes it is brought forth at the climax into full light, and sometimes even then it is merely half-revealed, is left undefined but perhaps all the more alarming. In any case, the presence of some unnatural but objective reality is assumed and established. The goblins and phantoms devised by James are truly creative, and are presented through images often so keen and vivid as to evoke an actual physical shock. Sight, smell, hearing, taction are all played upon with well-nigh surgical sureness by impressions calculated to touch the shuddering quick of horror. Some of the images or similes employed are most extraordinary, and spring surely from the demonic inspiration of the highest genius. For instance, take the unnameable thing in the uncommon prayer book which resembles a great roll of old shabby white flannel with a kind of face in the upper end and which falls forward on a man's shoulder and hides this face in his neck like a ferret attacking a rabbit. Then, in Mr. Humphreys and his inheritance, one of the subtler and more inferential tales, there is the form with a burnt human face and black arms that emerges from an inexplicable hole in the paper plan of a garden maze, with the odious writhings of a wasp creeping out of a rotten apple. In the tractate mid-off, one meets an apparition with thick cobwebs over its eyes, the lich or specter of a man who, obedient to his own rather eccentric instructions, had been buried sitting at a table in an underground room, and who, upon reading the diary of Mr. Pointer, can fail to share Denton's revulsion when he reaches out, thinking that a dog is beside his chair, and touches a crawling figure covered with long, wavy, Absalom-like tresses. Who, too, can shake off the horror of Deniston and Canon Alberic's scrapbook, when a demon's hand appears from beneath under the table, suggesting momentarily a pin-wiper, a rat, and a large spider? Reading and rereading these tales, one notes a predilection for certain milieus and motifs. Backgrounds of scholastic or ecclesiastic life are frequent, and some of the best tales are laid in cathedral towns. In many of the supernatural entities, there recurs insistently the character of extreme and repulsive hairiness. Often the apparition is connected with, or evoked by, some material object, 
such as the bronze whistle from the ruins of a Templar's preceptory, in a whistle and I'll come to you, my lad, the old drawing of King Solomon and the Night Demon in Canon Alberic's scrapbook, the silver Anglo-Saxon crown from an immemorial barrow in a warning to the curious, and the strange curtain pattern in the diary of Mr. Pointer, which had a subtlety in its drawing. In several stories there are hints of bygone Satanism and wizardry whose malign wraiths or conjured spirits linger obscurely in modern time, and in at least one tale, casting the runes, the warlock is a living figure. In other tales, the forgetful and vanishing phantasms of old crimes cry out their mindless pain, or peer for an instant from familiar pools and shrubberies. The personnel of James's pandemonium is far from monotonous. One finds a satyr dwelling in a cathedral tomb, a carven, cat-like monster that comes to life when touched by a murderer's hand, a moldy-smelling sack-like object in an unlit well, which suddenly puts its arms around the neck of a treasure-seeker, a cloaked and hooded shape with a tentacle in lieu of arms, a lean, hideously taloned terror with a jaw shallow as that of a beast, dolls that repeat crime and tragedy, creatures that are dog-like but not dogs, a sawfly, tall as a man, met in a dim room full of rustling insects, and even a weak, ancient thing which, being wholly bodiless and insubstantial, makes for itself a body out of crumpled bed linen. The peculiar genius of M. R. James and his greatest power lies in the convincing evocation of weird, malignant, and preternatural phenomena such as I have instanced. It is safe to say that few writers, dead or living, have equaled him in his formidable necromancy, and perhaps no one has excelled him. End of section four, The Weird Works of M. R. James Revenant I am the specter who returns unto some desolate world in ruin born afar on the black flowing of Lethian skies. Ever I search in cryptic galleries the void sarcophagi, the broken urns of many a vanished avatar, or haunt the gloom of grumbling pylons vast and temples that enshrine the shadowy past. Viewless, impalpable, and fleet, I roam stupendous avenues and greet familiar sphinxes carved from everlasting stone, or the fair brittle gods of long ago, decayed and fallen low, and there I mark the tall clepsamier that time has overthrown, an empty clepsidre, and dials drowned in umbrage never lifting, and there on rusty parapems I read the ephemerides, of antique stars and elder planets drifting oblivionward in night, and there with purples of the tomb bedight, and crowned with funeral gems, I hold awhile the throne, where on mine immemorial selves have sate, canopied by the triple-tinted glory of the three suns forever paled and flown. I am the specter who returns, and dwells content with his forlorn estate, in mansions lost and hoary, where no lamp burns, who feasts within the sepulchre, and finds the ancient shadows lovelier than gardens all emblazoned with sevenfold noon, or topaz-builded towers that throng below some iris-pouring moon, exiled and homeless in the younger stars. Henceforth I shall inhabit that gray clime, 
whose days belong to primal calendars, nor would I come again back to the garish terrain hours, for I am free of vaults unfathomable, and treasures lost from time, with bat and vampire there, I flit through somber skies immeasurable, or fly adown the unending subterranes, mummified and ceremented. I sit in councils of the kingly dead, and oftentimes for vestiture I wear, the granite of great idols looming darkly, and Atlantean fanes, or closely now and starkly, I cling as clings the attenuating air about the ruins bare. End of section 5, Revenant. Ling Yang, the poet, sits all day in his willow-hidden hut by the riverside, and dreams of the Lady Moy. Spring and the swallows have returned from the timeless isles of Amaranth, further than the flight of sails in the unknown south. The silver buds of the willow are breaking into gold, and delicate jade-green reeds have begun to push their way among the brown and yellow rushes of yesteryear. But Ling Yang is heedless of the brightening azure, the light that lengthens, and he has no eye for the northward flight of the waterfowl and the passing of the last clouds that melt and vanish in the flames of an amber sunset. For him there is no season save that moon of waning summer in which he first met the Lady Moy. But a sorrow deeper than the sorrow of autumn abides in his heart. For the heart of Moy is colder to him than high mountain snows above a tropic valley. And all the songs he has made for her, the songs of the flute and the songs of the lute, have found no favor in her hearing. Leagues away in her pavilion of scarlet lacquer and ebony, the Lady Moy reclines on a couch piled with sapphire-colored silks. All day through the gathering gold of the willow foliage, she watches the placid lake on whose surface the pale green lily pads have begun to widen. Beside her, in a turquoise-studded binding, there lies the verses of the poet Ling Yong, who lived six centuries ago, and who sang in all his songs the praise of the Lady Loy, who disdained him. Moy has no need to peruse them any longer, for they live in her memory even as upon the written page. And sighing, she dreams ever of the great poet Ling Yong, and of the melancholy romance that inspired his songs, and wonders enviously at the odd disdain that was shown toward him by the Lady Loy. End of section 6, Prose Pastels 1